As of today, the content gods have bestowed us with five episodes of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, and so far, Disney hasn't totally dropped the ball. That's a phrase I haven't said in a long time. As far as book-to-screen adaptations go, they've honored Rick Riordan's vision and not only incorporated every major plot point from the book, but also just about every Greek myth that Riordan used when writing it. With that in mind, I want to spend this episode analyzing every single myth the show has referenced, because there's a lot of them. And while needless to say, Riordan was respectful of his source material, there are a number of details and alternate versions of these stories that he left out or changed, usually because they were too violent or sexy. Today we're going to focus on the first episode of the series because there's already a lot of ground to cover, but in future parts we'll be dissecting two episodes at a time so we can catch up before the season is over. So without further ado, let's dive into the messed up myths behind Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Myth 1. Demigod Deaths now before we get started, I just want to be clear that when I talk about the story not following the mythology exactly, I don't mean that's a bad thing. I understand that Riordan is bending the rules and references for his own universe, and I'm totally fine with it. This might seem like a needless disclaimer, but I've noticed that whenever I talk about Disney putting its own spin on fairy tales and myths, there's always comments about how they're effectively ruining the story. Most of the time, I don't agree with that. They're just telling a story of their own, and as long as that story makes sense and they're honoring the values of the original, that's fine by me. Alright, so we're going to go through this chronologically in the order that things happen in the show. Let's start at the beginning. Being a half-blood is dangerous. It's scary. Most of the time it gets you killed in painful, nasty ways. And we're already stopping. Percy says that half-bloods die in painful, nasty ways and he ain't lying. Heracles, who overcame countless monsters and men during his travels, was ultimately killed by a jealous wife who smeared his shirt with acidic hydra blood, thinking it was a love potion, and this caused him so much pain he had to light himself on fire to burn away his physical form. You have Bellerophon, a son of Poseidon, so technically Percy's older brother. He crash-landed into Earth after he tried flying Pegasus to the heavens, and an angry Zeus caused Pegasus to buck him off his back. Orpheus, the greatest musician of all time was the son of Apollo and was torn limb from limb by a bunch of spurned women who were mad he didn't want to bang them. Seriously. A little later in the episode, Percy's mom says one of the reasons she gave him the name Perseus is because he's one of the few heroes to have a happy ending. But even this is dependent on which version of the story you read. In the most popular version of the myth, he founds a city and becomes king, but according to Ovid's Metamorphoses, Perseus kills his great uncle, then is revenge killed by the son of his great uncle. That might have just been Ovid's hot take though. I'll be doing more research and covering the complete journey of Perseus in an upcoming episode. Myth 2. Pegasus and the Colchis Bulls Back to the show, when Perseus is young, he witnesses some strange sights, like a pegasus on a rooftop by his school, and what looks like a colchis bull meandering down the city street. Now I thought this might be THE pegasus, but in episode 2 we see Grover tending to multiple pegasuses. 
Pegasi. Technically, Pegasus is the only flying horse in Greek myth, unless you count the half-horse, half-rooster, Hippolectrion, but I'll give this a pass because the book and show take place thousands of years after the myths about Pegasus, so in that time, he easily could have made some babies. As for the Colchis Bull, if we're staying true to the myth, and even Riordan's book series, this mechanical monstrosity would have been built by Hephaestus, the god of blacksmithing. In myth, Hephaestus made the bull for King Aetes as a thank you to the king's father Helios, the personification of the sun, after Helios carried the blacksmith to the heavens in his chariot when he exhausted himself on the battlefield of Phlegra. Myth 3. The Birth of Perseus in the next scene, we see Perseus and his mom staring at a statue of Perseus with the head of Medusa in his hand, but we'll talk more about his encounter with her next week. Right now, I want to focus on the origin story that she gives for the Greek hero. She tells Percy that Perseus and his mother were sealed into a chest and thrown into the sea by an angry king, and by some miracle survived. He and his mother were placed in a wooden chest and cast out into the sea by a very angry king but she doesn't tell him why the king was so angry. Which is probably a good thing because Percy is like eight years old here. You see, Perseus's mother Danae was the daughter of King Acrisius. Acrisius was disappointed that he hadn't spawned a son, and so he went to the oracle to ask her what the deal was. In true oracle fashion, she did not give him good news. She said he may not have had a son, but his daughter will, and her son, will kill him. Naturally, this shook Acrisius up a bit, and he handled his anxiety in the worst possible way, by constructing an underground prison that he could seal his daughter in to make sure she'd never get pregnant. Yeah, you thought a chastity belt was bad, try a chastity prison, which I'm pretty sure is just another term for Bible camp. But here's the thing, guys. Acrisius wasn't a monster. He was just scared. So out of the kindness of his heart, he allowed an opening to be built in the ceiling of the prison that was narrow enough no human could fit through it, but wide enough that Danae would get a generous amount of sunlight during the day. What Acrisius never expected, though, was that Zeus himself, the lord of all the gods and the cosmos, would take a liking to his daughter. And everybody knows the rules. If Zeus wants to hump something, he's gonna hump it. He transformed himself into a golden shower of sunlight, entered Danae's cell, and got her pregnant. The princess knew that if her father found out she was pregnant, he would do something insane, so she chose to hide her pregnancy. But the secret was out immediately after the baby was born. And in a rage, Acrisius had mother and son locked in a chest and thrown out to sea. Seems like a surefire death sentence, doesn't it? Well, believe it or not, Zeus actually had strong feelings for Danae, and maybe he even cared about his kid too, so he persuaded Poseidon to calm the raging seas. This allowed the chest to drift to the island of Seraphis, where it was found by a fisherman named Dictus. Dictus recruited some nearby satyrs to help him pull it to shore, and lo and behold, he found mama and baby inside. So when you think about it, satyrs played a key role in saving Perseus and Percy Jackson. I'm wondering if Riordan did that on purpose, or if it's just a coincidence, because it's such a small detail. Again, it's like poetry, so if they Mm -hmm. Every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. Now, I'm really excited to dive into this next myth because it's one I haven't mentioned much in the past, but first, I want to ask you a question. What is the most crucial step in taking your business or passion project to the professional level? In my opinion, it's having a sleek, sexy website to market yourself. That's where our sponsor, Squarespace, comes in. 
2024 has officially begun, which means it's the perfect time to start making meaningful changes in your life and accomplish those goals that you put off in 2023. And I'm telling you now, if one of your resolutions entails getting your startup business off the ground, then launching a website with Squarespace would be a major step in the right direction. Ironically, I'm pointing to my left, but for you, it's the right direction. Squarespace has made a name for themselves by empowering people like you and I, giving us web design novices the ability to create beautiful websites easily, efficiently, and affordably. They make the process so easy from step one with their huge library of award-winning templates that create the perfect foundation for you to build on, intuitive design tools that let you drag and drop boxes wherever you please, and the fact that you don't ever have to download any software or patches. And because Squarespace knows how important a website is for success, they offer their users marketing tools and analytics so you can see how much traffic your site gets and which keywords to optimize for so you can market yourself more effectively and grow those numbers like you never thought possible. So whether you're trying to establish your business's online identity or you want to get professional with your passion, you can go to squarespace.com slash johnsolo to start your completely free trial. And when your site is ready for launch, use code johnsolo to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and support the Messed Up Origins podcast. Myth 4 the Furies. When Percy and his class are on a field trip at the museum, he's confronted by his pre-algebra teacher, Mrs. Dodds, who reveals herself to be a fury and introduces a trope that this show loves. Villains walking extremely slowly toward their would-be victims. The Furies, also known as the Orinyes, were goddesses of vengeance who punished men and women who defied the natural order of the cosmos. Writers described them as ugly winged women with venomous serpents entwining their limbs and hair, wearing either the long black robes of mourners or the short skirts and high boots of huntress maidens, and wielding whips. The Furies were particularly concerned with murder, perjury, violation of hospitality laws, offenses against the gods, and even disobedience toward parents. In the show and book, the Furies are acting on the orders of Hades, but the Greeks and Romans didn't see them as exclusively servants of the gods. Any victim of one of the aforementioned crimes could call down the curse of the Furies on the perpetrator, and the Furies would punish them in horrible ways. Transgressors would be infected with diseases and illness, and if they had done something really horrible, like murder their own parents, they would be cursed with a tormenting madness that made it impossible to function in society. Their wrath was also near impossible to escape from. Their victims could pray, sacrifice, or cry all they wanted, and the Furies would not let up. Hell, even death itself wasn't an escape because then they'd be sent to a specific part of the underworld known as the Dungeon of the Damned, where the Furies were in charge of tormenting criminals for all eternity. The only way to atone for your sins would be through a specific purification ritual and the completion of some task. Kind of like how Heracles had to complete the 12 labors for the murder of his wife and children, and how Perseus is expected to return the Master Bolt and Helm of Darkness because he supposedly stole them. Early writers like Homer never gave a specific number for how many Furies there are, but later writers like Virgil claim there are three. Their names are Tisiphone, Megara, and Electo, with Electo being the true identity of the lovely Mrs. Dodds. Myth 5. The Seder. Now let's fast forward a bit. Percy's been kicked out of school, 
Not for vaporizing his pre-algebra teacher because the mere mortals don't even realize she exists, but for pushing this yappy brat into a fountain. And now he's up in Montauk with his mom. She's just told him his father's a god, which makes him a demigod, when his boy Grover shows up at their cabin with his goat legs in full view. It turns out that Grover is a satyr, a creature that doesn't get a lot of respect in mythology but that's for good reason. In myth, satyrs are drunken, sex-obsessed party boys. Also, they're hideous, described as having bristly hair, a round nose that's turned upwards, pointy ears, and with the horns and legs of either a ram or a goat. Satyrs are almost exclusively followers of Dionysus, the god of wine and merrymaking, so they're often depicted with goblets or musical instruments in their hand and as fans of sensual pleasure, they're usually shown alongside nymphs, nature spirits, which I believe is who we see Grover talking to in episode two before he attends the Cloven Council. Fun fact, the Greek writer Hesiod describes satyrs as a race that's good for nothing and unfit for work. He says they're worthless and helpless. And I think if Grover heard that, he would bite Hesiod's lips off. Another fun fact is that Nanus's Dionysiaca claims that satyrs are the sons of Hermes, the messenger god, which means that if Grover were able to attend Camp Half-Blood, he'd be in Cabin 11 alongside Luke and the Unclaimed. Myth 6, The Minotaur. Before Percy, Grover, and Sally Jackson can reach the camp, they're ambushed by the Minotaur wearing a pair of tidy whities which ultimately leads to them getting in a wicked car crash and Sally being vaporized. For those who don't know, the Minotaur is nothing like the Centaur, which is an entire species of creatures. The Minotaur is one of one, and Disney wouldn't touch the story of his conception with a 10-kilometer pole. That's right, I said kilometer. I don't know how far that is, but I want to be inclusive of our friends across the pond. You see, once upon a myth, there was a Cretan king named Asterion who adopted the three sons of Zeus and Europa. When Asterion died, there was debate among the brothers over which of them would take his place on the throne, and the brother named Minos insisted that it was the god's will that he become king. It's a bold claim, and one that his brothers as well as the kingdom citizens needed some evidence to believe. So Minos told them that whatever he prayed for would come true. Now, just to be clear, Minos was talking out of his ass here. He had no idea how he was going to prove it to them, but he was a half-blood with a connection to the divine. So he prayed to his uncle Poseidon and offered him a fat sacrifice if he helped him out. Poseidon foolishly took the deal, and when Minos gathered his brothers and loyal subjects at the coastline, he powerpointed to the ocean, and from its waves arose a great, big, beautiful white bull. That was enough to convince everyone that Minos was the true heir to the throne. But after he was given his crown, he started having second thoughts about sacrificing the bull. He knew Poseidon wanted it, but chose to sacrifice some regular everyday shitty bulls instead. So Uncle Poseidon taught his nephew a lesson. Firstly, he cursed the bull with uncontainable insanity so that Minos had no choice but to set it free from his stables, which only made the bad situation worse because then the raging bull started terrorizing the city. But as if that wasn't bad enough, he also inflicted Minos's wife, Pasiphae, with uncontainable lust for that bull. And by lust, I mean exactly what you're hoping I don't. She was craving some grade A beefcake, and she recruited Greece's greatest inventor, Daedalus, to build her a cow suit that she could seduce the bull in. 
and for some reason, Daedalus agreed to it. Probably not the first rich lady to ask him to build something kinky. Crazy that the first furry suit came from Greek mythology, though. Well, you can guess what happened next. The union of Pasiphae and the Cretan bowl led to the birth of Asterius, the one and only Minotaur. But check this out. If you consider the Cretan bowl a son of Poseidon, which I would because the gods spawned him on his own, then Asterius would be his grandson, meaning that Percy Jackson is the Minotaur's uncle. Greek mythology is basically just succession if the characters were gods. This one dysfunctional family has more drama than everyone else combined, and the stakes are always at the absolute peak. Now this breakdown is only the beginning of our deep dive into the new Percy Jackson series, so make sure you sacrifice those five star and follow buttons so you don't miss my breakdown of episode two coming on Monday or episode three and four on Friday. That's right, we've got two episodes coming out next week. I told you we're gonna catch up to that season finale. Also, make sure to comment your opinions on how the show is so far and any myths I may have missed during my research. I'll see you all again next week with more messed up mythology. Until then, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first. Thank you.